This is good. God has promised to bless us. We like this message. Nature will be productive and peaceful. The rains will come at the right times and food will be abundant. And best of all, God promises to make it up to us for all the hard times that we have had along the way. We like this message a lot more than we like what Joel said in the previous chapter when he said, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Be ashamed, you tillers of the soil, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, O ministers of the altar. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Alas for the day. The day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Well, I suppose that might have been a message that worked in ancient Israel, but it's hardly calculated to resonate in contemporary America, even among American Christians, whom one might expect to have some natural affinity for the words of a biblical prophet, even American Christians would rather hear the human call to 40 days of purpose than the divine call to 40 days of penance. Yes, we think differently about things. When we experience the unexpected disaster, whether it's the destruction of the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York, or a tsunami, or a hurricane, or earthquake, this being St. Louis, we have to mention earthquakes. Whenever these things destroy our homes and businesses and lives, when destruction from the Almighty comes upon us, our natural reaction is not generally to follow Joel's example and ask, what's wrong with us that God is punishing us? Rather, our reaction is to ask, what's wrong with God? How can a God who is all-loving and all-powerful allow such things to happen? Is it perhaps that God is not really all-powerful after all? Or is it just that he is not really as loving as we think? Maybe he's just a disinterested observer. Or maybe, just maybe, he doesn't even exist. Yes, even among us Christians, Joel's reminder that we are poor, miserable sinners hardly finds a welcoming ear. And we hear that classic confession as more of a theological theory than a reality that fundamentally shapes our self-understanding. 
And so we go on, saying all the right things and hardly ever considering their implications for our life before God and one another. Until God breaks into our lives, like he broke into the lives of the people at the time of the prophet Joel. It is there, in the crucible of suffering embraced, and in the moment of genuine turning from our own ways by the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word, that we hear with true joy Joel's message that God's first word is not his last word. His last word is that blessed word from the cross, it is finished. And so it is in Christ that our eyes are opened and we are able to see the sufferings that God allows us to endure as preparation for the gospel. In the same way, it is only in Christ that the promises that God makes to Israel and to us through Joel find their meaning. What God promises in his word to us today is not simply the coming of happy days for the Judahites or for you and me in the here and now. What God promises is the completion of that trajectory that began when God proclaimed judgment upon Adam when he was expelled from God's garden. Uh, that, prompt, that judgment being that uh, he would receive the fruit of the land only through toil and hardship. It's the completion of that same trajectory which continued through the promises that God gave to Israel that he would deliver, when he delivered them from bondage in Egypt uh, and brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Indeed, in Christ we come to understand that all the promises that God gave to Israel regarding the land are ultimately fulfilled not in the historical kingdoms of Israel or Judah. You see, they never were or could be really a land flowing with milk and honey. These promises are fulfilled in the Messiah. And it was for this reason that the early church father Hippolytus says in his apostolic tradition, that in the second century, a cup of milk and honey was given to the newly baptized Christian as a sign that they had entered into the land that God had promised to Israel. Not a bad tradition when you think about it. And to those Christians of today who claim that the modern state of Israel is in any way related to the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of the land. The Word of God says that they share the blindness of the Jews who fail to read the law, the prophets, and the writings in Christ. But God speaks this true word to you. 
In Christ, you are brought at long last into the renewed Eden that is his kingdom, where God once again dwells with those whom he has created. In Christ, you are brought into the land flowing with milk and honey, this land which Joel prophesies, a land of abundance and riches, healing and rest and peace in his grace. In Christ, God fulfills in you the promise that he spoke to Joel when he says, you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I, Yahweh, am your God and there is no other and my people will not be put to shame forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, who made this so, amen.